Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Bruce Tharp. He's believed to be the first industrial designer to receive a PhD in anthropology at the University of Chicago in 1998. Bruce began researching the material culture of Indiana's old order Amish, focusing on the production and consumption of value. He first earned a BS in mechanical engineering from Bucknell University and a master's degree in industrial design from Pratt Institute. In between his schooling, he served as a U.S. Army nuclear weapons officer in Germany. After researching the future of work and the workplace for Hallworth's Inc. design research think tank, the Ideation Group, he began his teaching career. Over the last 15 years, he has been a tenured professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, the University of Illinois Chicago, and currently at the University of Michigan's Penny W. Stamp School of Art and Design. His and his wife, Stephanie's award-winning design studio has exhibited internationally licensed designs for local and global companies and self-produced commercial, experimental, and discursive products. And we're here primarily to discuss he and Stephanie's work, discursive designs, critical, speculative, and alternative things. So Bruce, I want to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing, I'm doing well here in Michigan. You know, the book is beautiful first of all, right? So I'm always encouraged when people with a design background also design aesthetically beautiful in terms of the the work that they do for people like myself, laymen, readers, what have you. So I, I want to give you an opportunity before we really get into the book to just kind of talk a little bit about your background and how you came specifically to bring the, the design and anthropological lens together because I think it, that sets us up for discussing why the book even exists. As you read with my bio, studying engineering, and I, I did that largely because I, w- I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. My father was a was an engineer, was an, a, an industrial engineer, and I liked things, taking things apart, putting them together, sort of mechanical in that way, and, uh, and, and thought that engineering might be a, a good fit. But after a couple of years into engineering school, you know, I realized it wasn't, I wasn't passionate about the work. A basic level, uh, I was. And then as it started to get deeper and deeper, it was uh, less, less interesting to me. But I was on an uh, ROTC, uh, an Army scholarship, and I, I owed them time after my graduation. So I went into uh, active duty military. And uh, right around that time, uh, or actually during that era, is when the army started to to do some drawdown. Basically, with the, I was a as you mentioned, army nuclear weapons officer. So the army was getting out of the nuclear weapons business at that time, and I w- used that time while I was there uh, to think about what I wanted to do. And and I got out early. Essentially, was able to get out a, a year or so early, and then shift the rest of my obligation to individual ready reserves, which basically means that you know my name's on the list and. You know, I get a physical every year, and if they ever need me, you know, they can call me up. So, and, that, and it was during that time when I, I discovered industrial design. I had no idea what industrial design was, which is fairly common of 
uh, other designers now my age, uh, it's not an uncommon story to to come into industrial design after another an, another degree. Now it's it's far more well known. So I discovered industrial design and and thought, hey, this is it. This is magic, and it's what I want to do. It's in in a way what I was always doing, sort of tinkering around as a, a as a youth and. When I started design, it was really home and I loved it. Uh, however, there was, at this time, I started in I, 1993, I started at, at Pratt and uh, the industrial design program at Pratt Institute. And it was very much um, an arts-based model where we didn't focus that much, uh, at least at that time. It's, it's different now. The whole discipline's different now. But we weren't focusing that much on understanding people that much. Uh, we did a little bit of understanding the, you know, the user a little bit, but design research in the United States was was almost non-existent at that point as a discipline. And this notion of the social and uh, sort of broader understandings of, of larger collectives just wasn't present in, in the work. And I I did my my thesis at that at that time really sort of brought that to the fore that uh, it, it basically industrial design didn't have the the intellectual tools to interrogate these kind of ideas that I was most interested in, which is why I ended up, you know, finding anthropology. And it sounds like you said when you when you came upon this notion of industrial design, it was where you felt you always was was meant to be, right? It kind of captured that tinkering ethos that that you had as a child growing up and kind of putting things together, taking things apart. What, in your mind, were some of the key differentiations between a sort of, what I'll use, again, another layman term, kind of a standard engineering background and focus, and what you discovered that kind of turned that light on for you in in industrial design specifically? Yeah. I mean, that's a, a really good and, and, and pertinent question. Because I'm a, a, I was an engineer turned industrial designer at the University of Michigan, I, I'm kind of the go-to person for our um, disgruntled engineering students who are were very much like myself, I think, and they're you know, not quite passionate and curious about this thing called design. I didn't have the advantage of having a design program around to even know that it was there. So I end up uh, sort of counseling a lot of the engineering students who are interested in, you know, sort of dabbling. And, we, you know, there's different programs that students can take. But largely, I think it has to do with the type of creativity and the type of problem finding and problem solving that designers do, that engineers that don't. They're, I mean, they're both creative. Everything's creative, right? It's just the, the different types of problems and kind of the constraints. We do a lot of work with in interdisciplinary teams. And uh, so, um, and I, I lead a lot of interdisciplinary teams and you know, my experience that the engineers largely want to move as quickly to solve, figure, you know, the, the response is, please tell me the problem so we could get along and solve, we'll get to work solving this problem. And designers are more interested in unpacking and thinking about the problem more broadly and other possibilities. And in design, in the sort of problem solving process, they want to keep the constraints, the recs and specs, the requirements and specifications, they want to keep that open as long as possible, where that's essentially the first step for engineering. What are my requirements and specifications? Okay, now let's get to work. So there tends to be a little bit more of a straight, kind of a straight line approach in engineering and other and other disciplines too. We work with a lot of medical professionals, same type of thing, you know, 
let's do the research and then move in that straight line from the research results or insights to a, to a solution where in design, we like the divergent and convergent process and the, and the looping and, and all of that we're more interested in, or we tend to embrace that more so than other more technical disciplines. So that, that's sort of the, the broadest generality I think I can put together on that. There are lots of little tiny things, but that's my experience sort of in working with all types of more technical and more creative art and design students, as well as, you know, business, school of information, engineers, you know, marketing. You know, I, I think that lets us start to get a little bit more into kind of the, the crux of the book. You know, I'm, I'm skipping around a little bit because I, I think you said something very interesting about the broad nature of design is more questioning. You know, it has, it has less of a, potentially less of a linear nature to it. But what I, what I also noticed in, in the book as I went through it is that you do discuss the commercial overlay that exists now in design. And, and I'm curious as to your thoughts as to whether that commercial end user product, commercial product in mind has changed a little bit of that ethos to make it a little bit more linear. Have you, have you seen that evolution? And, and if so, to what degree? Just to make the degree to which sort of a commercial lens or commercial approach design makes that more of a linear process than more of an open process. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes and no. And why I sort of asked to clarify the question is, I think has to do with the dominance of a commercial approach. Most people, when they think of design, think of the commercial approach. So I think in my experience, you don't have that freedom for the divergences and convergences as much within more commercial processes. So that's the the yes part of your question. So largely because the uh, the more open endedness, the the problem finding versus the problem solving aspects of that, it takes more time and it introduces risk, which the c- commercial design is less of a fit for. You know, a lot of times clients don't want to pay for an answer that they're not looking for in some way. We get this all the time in industry where, you know, they want design research, you know, they want to unpack the problem a little bit more, but they're not as willing to sort of embrace that, or they don't want to pay for that, or they don't want to, they'll they'll pay for a a small sort of truncated approach to it rather than a whole open-ended one. And, And that's kind of the nature of business, the nature of commerce and the type of risk that they're dealing with. And, and it's true that if I were a businessman, I would, I would approach things the same way. So it's not, it's just sort of the, the nature of the system that they're working in and those kinds of, they tend to be less, that more, more risk averse. And they want a sense of that something's been tried and true. And, you know, they've got millions of dollars on the line for tens of millions for factories and, and marketing budgets and all that. So it just makes complete sense. And they would want to be more conservative, yet designers that might want to be more progressive and sort of use uh, sort of that notion um, that we want to try new things. Like, you know, what's going to be exciting for me as a designer on a problem is doing something new and interesting and innovative. And that may be different from what an engineer might want and what a marketing person might want. In fact, there's some interesting studies on that, the values of multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary teams. And it's very it's sort of enlightening to, to do this. I think it was even in 2001, I think there's a book called by Kagan and Vogel, Creating Breakthrough Products, and part of their work on interdisciplinary teams. And this is what I've 
I thought this was sort of wonderful when I first saw it. They basically had these uh, engineering marketers and designers, I think, basically give feedback on colanders, which colander they preferred. And it was, you know, pretty stark difference. It's very important. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was very straightforward and it, it made a lot of sense. It, it made it very clear that if you have an interdisciplinary team and the values in and measures of success of what you're trying to get out of, of a product are, are different, you know, it's it's going to be problematic. So at least sort of getting, you know, knowing that you have different um, values and that's something that you need to when you're putting a team together to, to get across or at least be sensitive to. And, and the adversity or the, the risk adverse piece is is something I want to spend a little bit of time on because I, I often wonder, because I've heard similar arguments in many different spaces um, around this, in order to move forward, we have to, you know, avoiding risk is is critical. You know, as, as someone who was a, as a trader, I, I described that job as one, almost 100% risk management, you know, relative to the market and the firm's capital and, and any particular transaction. But in kind of the situation that I'm picturing, I'm curious as to, does the desire to be risk adverse actually open you up to just different types of risk, right? Like you you risk stagnation, you risk missing opportunities. There's, there's a lot of risks out there that aren't just capital risk, right? There's the, the, the risk of not doing something right? As opposed to doing the wrong thing. So I'm curious your thoughts on that as someone who has looked at this stuff from a practitioner perspective, from an academic, and also someone who works with organizations wrestling with these types of issues, right? No, you're exactly right that, you know, there's there's pros and cons with everything and a little bit what you begin to, to focus on and the notion of, you know, I, I think the uh, the the long term short term ish questions uh, begin to press that certainly you know that's the problem with corporate America in terms of publicly traded companies when you know you've got to make your numbers every quarter right and what's the risk of 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 missing those no those numbers right the incredible impact on that and you may not be around long enough you know if you if you keep missing those because you've got a longer term you know you've got a ten year plan in place that's that more risky. But yeah, the, yeah, the, the notion that you can't afford not to, right? Sometimes, if you're taking the long game, short game, okay, makes sense little by little. But after a prolonged period of time, you're going to be in a place where you you can't compete anymore. You can't move out of that that, that space. The the company that uh, I work for, Hayworth, that you had mentioned at the uh, at the beginning, that they were it was sort of an interesting time. They were in, they were in a sort of a similar space where they were they were an engineering their company that had engineering roots, uh, engineering founder and that's what they prided themselves on but they were in you know this space surrounded by you know companies like Herman Miller and Knoll who are 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 known for design in fact you know some of the best known 20th century designers that Ray and Charles Eames you know Herman Miller you know basically sells all their furniture still sells their furniture i'm sitting in one right now one of their pieces of furniture and and that's sort of the competition that we were at and we just could you can't win with interior designers and architects you know, from the engineering perspective, when you're up against sort of, you know, these sort of icons of of design. And so they, it, it took them quite a bit of time. And it was sort of a frustration while I was there, because I wanted to keep pushing, you know, more, you know, to switch. And it was, you know, it was clear even with the number of engineers versus the number of designers, that sort of tells you a lot about, you know, a company and where they're, where they're at. Uh, but they've sort of successfully transitioned to that. And it was sort of nice to sort of see, but also a little, a little frustrating at the time. 
to see that kind of transition. I think it's mostly to answer your question, it's about short-term versus long-term thinking and some of the pressures of that that kind of force uh, your hand sometime. And the other thing also is this with the sort of corporate setup, right? The, the degree of, if you're in a position and you're in a company where there's mobility, possibility of moving up in a company, you're going to mitigate risks of screwing something up, right? If, if, if it's a position that you're going to be in two or three years, and then you're thinking about the next one, you don't want to screw this one up. So taking the kind of risk for, you know, on a five-year plan doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. And I, I saw that every day, you know, coming in when in speaking to our customers who were looking at, you know, investing millions of dollars, the products that we were that we were selling. So it's a, a lot of money. And when those stakes get higher, you know, <laughs> people tend to clamp on more and more. So yeah, the imagination gets a little a little narrower, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but I, I think the book is filled with literally speculative alternative is in the title, right? So it's a book, it's a work that spends quite a bit of time defining where we are, but also inviting us to look outside of the known notes, right? So I, I want to give you an opportunity, having said that, to kind of discuss why you think that it was important to to put this work together and then also give us a, you know, sort of a bird's eye view on what discursive design actually is all about. Okay. Yeah. Actually, our conversation so far, you know, kind of focused a lot about the commercial and sort of setting that up. So I, I definitely have, you know, my hand and my head in that world to some extent, but I'm also self-reflective and critical of a lot of what that is about. I'm not someone who thinks that the commercial world and capitalism is inherently evil and problematic. I think it has problems just like you know, other systems uh, as well. And but this book was sort of uh, sort of a, a, a critical look at the design discipline that was largely you know rooted and anchored in uh, uh, in a commercial paradigm. So more so than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the question is how might we begin to think more broadly and more expansively about design and include some of these other forms or types or approaches or motivations for design that might mutually benefit w one another. And this is a little bit of a reaction to some of the work that had just come out in the, uh, let's say, you know, 1999-2000, where it was sort of first looking at more conceptual approaches to design and really pitting them against the marketplace. So this is the antidote for the marketplace and sort of defining these other approaches as that are yeah directly antithetical to those approaches. And I have always been somewhat of a pluralist in sort of see the value in very different things and I'm always keen to to try and maximize value and not sort of even with you know with with people or whoever you know I'm I'm incredibly forgiving of of people's foibles and things like that and <laughs> so our our approach is very much about that looking at some of the weaknesses of design and how and different approaches and how we can maybe potentially bring these uh, bring these together and, and this is also my life has sort of always been about doing something different within a context. You know, whether it was engineering, I was thinking more broadly outside of that. When I was in design, I was also thinking about what design was lacking and different. And as an anthropologist, which is largely in today's uh, approach, largely anti-capitalistic. And I was thinking, you know, the flip side of that. So I've always sort of been an outsider in these other realms because I see the value in there. I'm not I don't, I don't make enemies uh, with uh, disciplines or people really in that, in that kind of way. 
But Stephanie and I, we both went to schools of art, more of an art-based approach to design. She went to the Rhode Island School of Design in their industrial design program. And I went to, to Pratt in their industrial design program. And Pratt is a, you know, a school of art slash design. Um, actually, they just dropped their engineering program, I think, the year before I, I got there in 19, 1991, I think. Oh, no, no, 1993. So, but they're very much a, a school of art known and known for that. And so I began teaching. Stephanie was already teaching. I be, began teaching. And I was at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She was at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And we had students that were interested in doing different approaching design a little bit differently. My students were interested a little bit more in an arts-based approach. Her students were a, a more of a commercial-based approach. But certainly as you get to the graduate level, you know, students start you know, thinking a little bit more broadly and more, more critically about what's going on. So largely, we were, we were faced with a little bit of this challenge in, in, in how do we teach our students in a way and an approach that we didn't actually have our, our, ourselves. So while I didn't have a, a commercial design education in that way, it was much more open and arts-based, the problem with that or the challenge with that that Stephanie had as well, we were both engineers. And then we came to industrial design after an engineering background where you have all kinds of structures and rules. And we were both in these schools that, you know, the design approach was here's a problem, go out, think about it, be creative, come back and we'll critique the work. And when I say we will critique the work, it's basically a bunch of designers sitting around, you know, doing that critique. So this is a, a little bit frustrating for us even in a in a more open conceptual uh, approach to design and so largely what the book was at least a response in some ways to how do we begin to to teach students to do this kind of this kind of work this kind of more conceptual you know moving expansive moving a little bit away from or a lot of ways uh, from the marketplace in some cases giving them that flexibility to do work is just outside you know, within the marketplace, just outside of the marketplace, or has nothing to do with the marketplace at all, that there can be, this is work that can be valuable for the designers themselves, it can be valuable for society at large, certain individuals, that there's value in there. And, and it's not defined by the marketplace, which is largely what, when people think about design, that's that's what they think of, think of design, you know, things that existed, mass produced, you know, on the, in, in the marketplace. Yeah, that is definitely where where people kind of anchor their their thinking, and it's it's interesting. I want to I want to do a little detour and just give a shout out to Pratt because as as a Brooklyn kid, I, I went to I went to Brooklyn Tech for high school, and so Pratt has long been my barometer for gentrification, in the sense that when when I was in high school, we would have track meets sometimes at Pratt, and just walking from Tech to Pratt, which is not very far for those who are not familiar with. With Brooklyn, I'll, I'll, maybe it's a mile, maybe a little bit more than a mile, but it was a journey fraught with danger just because of the, how the neighborhood was in the 80s. And I, I lived in Fort Greene for many years, and it is not that way anymore. Oh, right? gosh, so no. <laughs> so yeah. it, is, it is filled with, with cafes and people eating outside. And I'm always amazed when I was, because I'm like, there's no way anybody would have been sitting on a street outside on DeKalb Avenue in between Tech and Pratt. <laughs> that was just not something you were going to do. <laughs> yeah, I, there was uh, there was sort of uh, one corner of the the campus, you know, basically this little 
type of, you know, oasis in a way, but that may be the wrong connotation with that term. But, uh, you know, there's a kind of a corner campus where you just didn't, you didn't go there. And then it was probably, I don't know, it was maybe 10 or 12 years. I hadn't been back. And lo and behold, you know, I go back and it's, <laughs> there's a, a club with, you know, a line out the door of people waiting to get. Oh yeah, absolutely. Get in there. You know, it's so completely, complete turnaround. It's it kind of, you know, and that actually. That's more on the Myrtle side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually in the, I had a colleague who he, he just, he had just graduated and I had just graduated and, and he wanted to go in and, and buy this building for $30,000. And I was like, no way. <laughs> You know, is this right across the street from Pratt now? Yeah, it's you know would have been that would have been a steal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be he'd be sitting on something worth multiple millions of dollars had he had he done that. You know, but but I I, I brought up the piece about Pratt not just to add some color to our conversation and some context, but you you talk so much about being in the world and how design is the objects in the world that come through design tell us about the world we're in. And how it is it's so important to go beyond the form and and the unity and the utility rather. So I wanna I wanna give you an opportunity to kind of talk about how that fits into that speculative and an alternative way of of looking at design because you're asking more of the objects in our world. We're giving ourselves an opportunity to, you know, ask deeper questions. And, and so I want to kind of hear your, your thoughts on that. So it's an intellectual game. It's an intellectual in, endeavor. So, and, and that's the, some of the challenge with product design doing this kind of work. Like we're talking about it's you know, associated with the marketplace and functionality and utility. Yet this type of design is, is first and foremost about getting people to reflect and think differently. It's using a utilitarian object in some way to do that in various ranges of utility and various ranges of refinement of that utility. Sometimes it's just a visualization of something that is utilitarian rather than the actual utilitarian artifact. Because these, yeah, it's, it, these are talking about they're tools for thinking. And, uh, and, and that's where it sort of like has where its goal isn't commercial, but it can be used in a commercial way, right? The idea that commerce might use a tool for thinking for, for their ends, just like any type of design could use a, a tool for thinking. So it's very much sort of breaking the mold. And the example that I, that I usually use for this is with graphic design. So as a graphic designer, you can create a better ballot, something that is more straightforward. That, so people, you know, you know, I was, I was around during the 2000, you know, hanging Chad issue. And, you know, it was largely said to be, you know, where design cost Al Gore the election, you know, that, that kind of thought where because of bad design and, in, you know, how information and how, you know, people, you know, poke their physical ballot. Um, so design, so designers, a graphic designer can work on that utilitarian problem, that pragmatic problem. But a graphic designer can also create a political poster. The political poster is an intellectual tool. The ballot is a sort of a, a physical utilitarian tool. So pragmatic and maybe poetic is how we could think of those. And graphic design has sort of seemingly always had the permission to do to work in both of those areas. But for some reason, product design, industrial design hasn't had that. They've had to stick in their lane. 
so largely what discursive design, it's just moving into the same realm that every other creative discipline lives in. Like for some reason, like product design is the only one that has been sort of in this in this realm. We think of architecture and conceptual forms of architecture and paper architecture, graphic design, fashion design, furniture design, if we you know, bracket that off a little bit from product or industrial design, they've always had this permission to do this kind of conceptual tool for thinking type of work never necessarily been that dominant, right? But but it's still, they've had more permission than design has had. So basically, in a way, it's just a, you know, a way of legitimizing that type of work for my discipline. And we talk about you know, legitimizing it and problematizing it as well too. So we're saying, hey, this stuff is okay to do and we're going to help conceptualize you know, how to, to do that and, and, and problematize it as well, saying you know, what, still what is it good for, what is it not good for. So those are some of the approaches that we, we take with it. So it's, an in, it's basically an intellectual using utilitarian artifacts for, to get people to think and largely get them to think about broader social, cultural issues. That's largely where it started. And we can think about this as, you know, sometimes most sort of famously in, in, in the 2000s, as, as I mentioned before, this notion of critical design sort of came on the scene. Now, this was 15 years after architecture had critical architecture and actually critical architecture. We're, we already had post-critical architecture by the time that design had, you know, had, had the first critical. Critical, had critical design. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> we've sort of been behind this sort of intellectual game, right? Art, architects have sort of been ahead a, a in that way. Um, largely because I think they've had more time to do it and more uh, sort of intellectual space too, because you know you're not building buildings every single day, right? So there's a lot of downtime with architecture. So, Absolutely, there's a longer there's a longer time horizon. Yeah. So this idea, so no, you know, I mentioned the notion of conceptual design. That's what it was sort of called when I was going to school, and then critical design kind of really firmed that up with the work of Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby. And then we've sort of seen sort of advances there. So I, I really look at that, you know, 1999, 2000 is sort of this hot spot, this sort of breakout point for, for doing this kind of work where it, for a number of different reasons, it had a little bit more permission. And so over the last 20 years, we've been, you know, working and it's been elevating and growing and we've been sort of seeing how this can be more useful. But it's it started out very much in this sort of critical vein, this anti-commercial vein and, and just get, yeah, getting people to, to think and, and be critical. And now we've sort of seen the evolution. And this is where, where some people think it's a little bit of a sort of a recursive turn we've done where commercial companies, uh, other organizations who have taken this tool that was originally anti-commercial you know, and been able to appropriate it and, and and use it for their for their own ends. So that's for some people who have a very sort of uh, sort of a, a pure notion of this type of work. Sort of see this as a as a kind of a prostitution of this type of thing. So that's that's definitely a criticism that's out there right now. Is as you know in, you know this is supposed to be you know antithetical and and here oh here go here here business goes again <laughs> in taking these yeah coming in yeah and and using and using this for their for their own for their own ends. And I understand the criticism of that. I also understand the power of that, right? That um, if this is a useful tool for them that actually produces useful things for the world and people in the world, then uh, then there's there's some good in that. There's also some bad, but there's also there's good in that. So, and and I think that that opens the door to kind of talk about you know culture and the shifts that we see in culture that has kind of gone along with this journey, right? You talk about you know where design was in one particular place in your life and how it's it's shifted 
as time has gone by, you now have these other ideas, right? These competing, not necessarily competing, but these ideas that live and ebb and flow with one another around what design can be, who does it work for, how does it fit, what's commercial and what's not. It seems like if you look at all of that in its totality, there is this sort of umbrella of culture that's going on that's starting to invite other questions. You know, how do you think the the overall culture piece starts to play into the very conversations that we're having about this type of speculation? Yeah, I think so. There's there's a culture, we can talk about the culture within design and sort of broader culture as well. I, I think that there are a number of reasons why I think that this type of work, discursive work, intellectual work is gaining more prominence is because of, of, of a cultural shift within, within designers themselves. Of course, they're a product of larger, you know, l- you know larger sociocultural systems as well. But I think a lot of designers today are, are seeing they are designers like me. I'm a designer. That's who I am. I was put on this planet, you know, that, that I was doing this when I was five, four or five years old. And it's, it's part of me. So they are designers, but they're not as excited about the systems in which they're working. And largely, we can look at mass production and some of the, the problems of global economies and some capitalist uh, problems as well. So they're not excited, you know, in, in sustainability issues, uh, social justice issues, that it's, it's not a good fit. And what this does is allow someone who is a designer, who has that within them to still participate, to still contribute to society in a way that where they're where they're not necessarily, you know, in the in the in the crassest form, they're not producing landfill. And they don't want to do that. When I when I was going to school, there was definitely people were thinking about that way. And they were largely sort of playing around with this notion of, you know, what is probably understood as socially responsible design. Uh, but there weren't a lot of options for that. But we've seen that grow from when I was a student where there were almost no options, you were lucky, you know, if, if you got to work on a project and now there are companies that do this and there's, you know, all kinds of professional opportunities and more entrepreneurial opportunities as well to do that kind of work. And we've see, I've, I'm seeing the same type of thing happen with this discursive work as well. And I think it's a, a response to the kind of problems that people are seeing in the world and the notion that, uh, that you know, that an object, uh, you know, uh, something you pick up and hold uh, is not necessarily the solution to the problem. And this notion that, the, you know, I sometimes use in, in my lectures is, you know, the, the idea that the, the revolution being televised, right, that uh, it's first a revolution of the mind. That's the first revolution. And then you see the revolution on TV, right? So how do you begin to change people's minds? And then change people's actions, and then subsequently change the the world after that. So this notion that the the revolution is not something that you see on TV, that is the effect of the first revolution, which is the change in uh, the change in thinking. And that's one of many, you know, obviously, you know, the analogy of culture being a cloth and lots of, you know, strands and the warp and the weft of all that, you know, that, that, you know, that's one, you know, that's one singular strand in that, in that, you know, cultural cloth that's, I think, causing, uh, or, that's uh, responsible for part of this change, I think that we're that we've been that we've been seeing. So, you know, I want to use that to kind of talk about inclusivity because that comes up quite a quite a bit in the book at all. This idea of one can be inclusive as you think about these issues, but should also have borders, right? And so, I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that because I, I use a, a maybe not a, a similar analogy, but I'll often talk about how when one actually 
has some limitations, some limits as to a creative brief or an idea, it actually gives you an opportunity to become even more free, right? Because you you understand where there are some parameters and now you're adjusting your thinking to them. So when the book kind of talks about this, th- this notion of inclusivity and disciplines, but with borders, I, I was curious if, if you were covering similar ground and, and just how you kind of put that thought together. Yeah, there are a couple of ways I could address your question. One of the ones more directly related to bo- the book in terms of this idea of these four, what we call the four fields of design, or maybe it's better, the four motivations, more dominant motivations of doing design. And because it, it gets at this uh, this question, and and this is a you know one bit of criticism. This actually started before the book. Is this idea of these sort of a four field approach, you know, with our students? The, the idea was how do we make sense of this thing that we know about, which is this commercial thing, and this sort of conceptual thing? How do they fit together? So we went about thinking and sort of a more sort of social scientific survey of the types of design that we found in sort of academic, you know, academic writing that also were sort of more colloquial that we sort of hear at conferences and things like that. And basically did a survey of that and tried to to create sort of categories. And we basically ended up with these, these four categories of commercial, responsible, experimental, and discursive as a way of, of making sense of the field. And that's, I guess, part, partly what's different about our approach than, uh, and our book than other ones that, um, that other ones that are sort of similar. They're not really that many, but we wanted to locate this kind of design, which in, with, within a broader design field, uh, other approaches to say, oh, there's this thing that, and it just kind of pops up. And like I said, maybe it's just, um, like I mentioned before, it's like commercial or non-commercial, right? They're, they're locating it, but in a very sort of, you know, simplistic, you know, kind of crude way. So this idea of these four motivations. So what it does, and this is, the, the power of some kind of boundaries is that it puts you in a category. Of course, we have to be careful, right? And this is, again, part of this project where I mentioned it's a project of expansion, like expanding the field of design. So we want to be more inclusive in that way. And we can sort of grow bigger, but we can sort of find places within that. And this is sort of fun. It actually goes back to human psychology and even Georg Zimmel, sociologist, 1900, writing about fashion and the fact that we have the human mind has this need to be the same and different. We want to be the same as a group that we have the same values and we're part of a larger thing, but we want to be distinct within that, right? So this sort of natural human thing. So we want to be designers, right? But we want to be also distinct within that in the kinds of motivation. So from a personal level, it it serves us. But more broadly, we, we just hear from, we talk to a lot of students and when we talk about this sort of four field approach, every single time we have students who come up to us afterwards and say, oh, this is so helpful, uh, you know, just identifying that there is, you know, something, there's a space within the broad field design that I, that feels like home to me. So it's a way of also creating, you know, just homes and things that people can uh, identify with. So it's including designers, the inclusive aspect is including designers who want who don't necessarily want to be a commercial designer but still are a, you know still a designer or how to have another aspect or something else that is a part of their their work that isn't sort of purely commercial in that way 
and the second way, just really quickly, is that this notion of constraint is also very helpful. You know, that's maybe where you're going at as well, too. That actually I find with my students about it's a 50-50 split. You know, when I give a, a, an assignment <laughs> that has lots of constraints, I, I get, you know, excitement from half the class and then moans from the other half of the class, right? Okay. Some people sort of really, really want that, you know, open in freedom and, oh, it's going to shut me down. But they themselves have the responsibility of creating their own constraints because they're not going to be able to move forward unless they have those constraints. So we all deal with constraints. It's the degree to which those are self-determined or other determined constraints. And some people are happy to have other determined constraints because it, all right, now I can start to get going. And I think this is also where you get you were going as well too, that those constraints can lead to things that you never would have imagined you know, before, right? If you're giving your own, yourself your own constraints, you're likely going to be giving a constraint that makes sense for you. Exactly. Right. So, so that yeah, so some of the pitfalls of the constraint issue, but it's something I deal with the, every single assignment I get. Like, how much constraint? Because I want creativity. I want people to think differently. I want to be surprised, but I also want to you know move students along the way. So it's a game of how much constraint to to actually give them. And there's a lot of psychology in that. And I want to I want to ask this question, and then we'll get into the final two segments of the show off the dome and the drop, because you, you also made a point and it was kind of buried. Maybe it felt, I read it in as one smaller point and, and then it kind of leaped around a little bit, but this idea of design having this role of general medicine and also having an opportunity to be a little bit more focused, like psychiatry was the example. And it leaped out to me because I've been having this ongoing sort of wrestling might be too strong a word, but I'm trying to figure out how from a culture perspective, like psychiatry and psychology, like language has become so pervasive beyond where they live. It, it feels like other spaces that I go into, we're using the language that comes from those worlds. So to see it pop up again in the context of a comparison of designers that are kind of thinking in a more general way, the analogy being general medicine, and then those who are more thinking in this, maybe psychiatric in the example, it kind of like rang a bell to me. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And then final two segments of the show. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, I think why that's relevant and why we wrote about that in that way is this notion of also tool for thinking, right? You know, specifically, you think of psychiatry, obviously related to the, to the, the cognitive and how design might be able to work in in that specific way. Designers often pride themselves on being generalists. And I think that's also, it's a strength, or at least it can be a strength. But I think there's room, and again, as a pluralist, you know, there's room for our specialists as well in there. So I think we need generalists, and, and there's an advantage to that. And there's also a value in having specialists that can sort of dig a little, you know, drive deeper in an area. And we, we sometimes talk about the T model in design where you you need to investigate something along the top line of the T, right, to get, you know, to broadly look to make sure you're covering a lot of ground. But at some point, you've got to drop you know, down to the vertical and get deeper in that. A lot of designers have a, have a great ability to do that, to do the broad thinking and then also down sort of the deeper vertical line there. And I just see that there's more opportunity for that specialization amongst the general thinking. Most discursive designers, people are doing this set of work, they come out of schools of commercial design. So like myself, I work in both of those areas. So I have the ability to think more broadly 
and have an interest. Maybe that's the bigger thing, an interest in working more broadly in different types of design, but also can drive down in a particular area and particular specialty if I want to. Largely design, unlike medicine, isn't necessarily as broad that we can do, we can kind of do that. Yeah. You know, it's a lot harder in other fields Absolutely. to have multiple specialties, but at least for right now design, we, we, there's still the ability, I think, to do that to some extent. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I want to get to the off the dome. And I have two questions and these are just kind of, well, I'm cheating. There's actually maybe three, but it's a part one, part two. So I'm, I'm not going to really count it as a separate question, but it's an opportunity to just rapid fire first thought that comes to your head. The first one is what is a design myth that you would love to address? When you walk into a room, no one's ever met you before and you, and you define yourself as a designer. What's one of the myths that you've heard that you would love to dismiss when people hear that as a, as a job description? Okay. Well, in the context that you gave, certainly the, you define yourself a designer. Like I, I've said that before, I'm a designer. And then they, oh, so you, you naturally do web design or so actually oh, yeah. the notion of what a designer is, is sort of the first thing. So if I were to introduce myself as a product designer or an, certainly an industrial designer, which is even worse that, yeah, that we don't necessarily just design machines as a sort of the, the sort of silly one with uh, industrial design, but also I think where creativity comes to play and the fact that we can be both very serious and work in very disciplined arenas, but also be creative as well. So there's usually a bias one way or the other, if, but usually it's a bias towards the, oh, you're just creative, you know, oh, you're just wild and wacky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my other two-parter is, is someone who, you know, a self-styled tinkerer and, and a designer, someone who's loved objects and, and like you said, putting them together and taking them apart. What is one of your favorite products from a design perspective? And then what is one of your least favorite products from a design perspective? Oh, gosh. Wow, that's a really hard question. And you would think it would be very easy. I thought it was. But, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. You know, it's like, oh, you love your babies, right? But there's also so much bad design that it's, what, what do you, <laughs> how do you choose from all this out there? I tend to appreciate beautiful tools mm -hmm. because of that combination of the the functionality, but also the the beauty. And there's also a beauty to the efficiency and, you know, not be cluttered in a simplicity. But I like it when we can begin to blend a little bit more deliberate beauty, more stylist beauty. That's a really tough thing to do. So there's some hand tools and things like that, that I think are, are particularly good in that area. There's a wonderful hammer that I have. It's like, you know, it just, it does it, it, you know, works really, really well. And, and hammers in general, you know, again, like I said, because of the utility, they could have a, a, a wonderful quality to them. But, you know, when it's styled in a little bit wet, really, you know, really nice. So sort of simple tools in that way, an ice cream scoop, that type of thing. So I really enjoy those types of designs. So many bad designs out there. I don't I don't <laughs> even know where to start. I just look around. I mean, it's just, just kids toys, kids stuff. Ugh. And I'm like, God, I, I hate to have these things in my house. You know, I have you know, <laughs> kids and I like I'm stuck with this horrible garbage plastic stuff that uh, it's it has such a limited life. I mean, it, at least there's at least there are Goodwill stores and hand me downs and that type of thing. But, you know, just the, the type of stuff that you have in your house when you're uh, you're raising kids, it's horrible. <laughs> so, yeah, I can imagine. I could definitely imagine. I mean, I think that's awesome. Well-designed tools and terrible kid shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't ask for, for two better kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So 
I want to get to the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners for them to check out, enjoy, listen to, read, or, or what have you. My drop is pretty easy today, or at least this episode. It's a poem, which I'll have the link to in the show notes, which is called If I Had Three Lives. So it's not long. It's pretty interesting. And it's just kind of one of those things that gives you a chance to think. And it's called If I Had Three Lives. And it's a poem. So that's my drop for this episode. I'm going to take a look. So for me, I guess a, a book I'm reading right now, I'm very interested right now in in consciousness and the expansion of consciousness. And I was lucky enough to, I had a Fulbright last year and was in Scotland and had a lot of free time uh, or free space to begin to think about a lot of these issues because I was working on a project on end of life. So end of life got me to, to consciousness and sort of what's out there. And there's a book by Penny Kelly, her name is yeah, Penny Kelly, and it's called The Revival. It's a book that she just come out with. I think she has like eight other books or something like that, but a very sort of very obscure in uh, as an author. But the idea is that with the book is that our reality is really a consequence of our consciousness. And if we change our consciousness, we change our reality. And it's a book that is kind of looking at how, how we might design new earth, right? New earth, new human, new new way of existing, new paradigm. And it takes, I think, 12 aspects of any society, you know, the arts, sciences, agriculture, uh, school education. And it's a, also a little bit of a workbook. It's basically like dozens and dozens of really, really wonderful, prov provocative questions about each of those areas. And it's kind of designed for yourself, but maybe small groups of people that want to make change in a particular area that they can think through some of these and, and, and discuss. So that's what I'm, I'm particularly interested in right now because I'm, I'm looking at K through 12 education a little bit, a little bit more and how, how to redesign that. And also certainly from a, from a design and how design might be able to, to get into K through 12. So I'm, I'm using that book a little bit to help me think more deeply and, and more expansively about possibility for education in the, in the new earth. That's awesome. We got we to gotta always question and, and develop something new. So I'm, I'm a fan of that. And the book sounds really interesting. So I, I think you, you gave a good one for our listeners. You know, Bruce, I really want to thank you for, for being on the show. I also want to thank your wife, Stephanie. She's not on the show with us, but she is a co-author of the book. And so I know both of your efforts and your creativity and, and all the rest of it kind of went into creating this. So again, the book is called Discursive Design, Critical, Speculative, and Alternative Things. I want to thank Bruce for being on the deep dive with me. It was an awesome, awesome book and awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.